0: very frustrated you know I, I called on the president to invoke the 14th amendment and mint a coin and do not negotiate with hostage takers I mean we don't negotiate with terrorists globally why are we going to negotiate with the economic terrorists here that are the
1: Republican Party good question but is that what the president's doing well I don't know why I came here tonight I'm not so sure I got the feeling there's something wrong right. Discuss. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair,
0: and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. I am...
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and a whole bunch of other fine affiliates who I do not have time to list today because that's how much show we got for you. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, as noted, we do have a lot to get to on today's program, uh, including some discussion of the debt ceiling and a few thoughts on what Joe Biden might, I underscore, might be doing.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting theory. I look forward to discussing
1: it. We will get to that interesting uh, theory. Hello, Desiree Doyen. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. All right. We got to start here, however. Our corrupt, packed, stolen, far-right U.S. Supreme Court is now beginning to release some of its major opinions for the term, which began last October and ends at the uh, end of June, give or take a few days in the event that they are as behind on their opinions as they seem to be this year. Of course, it's exhausting uh, cashing all of those checks from GOP (laughs) mega donors and so forth. So that eats into the time. But as expected from a corrupted, packed and stolen far right court, the news from one of their big opinions out on Thursday is not good news for those who oppose poisoning our drinking water and crazy lefty stuff like that. As per the AP, the Supreme Court on Thursday sharply limited the federal government's authority to police water pollution into certain wetlands. It is the second decision in as many years by this corrupted court in which the far right majority ignored both the text of federal laws and the clear intent of Congress to narrow the reach of environmental regulations. That's what the court is doing. The outcome could be sweeping even beyond pollution as it threatens, among other things, to hamper efforts to control flooding on the Mississippi River and to protect the Chesapeake Bay, among many other projects. As noted, shockingly enough, by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, What? Yes. He broke ranks with the other Republican appointees in the majority here. The justices boosted property rights over concerns about clean water in a ruling in favor of an Idaho couple who sought to build a house near Priest Lake in the uh, state's panhandle. The house is just about 300 feet from the lake and just 30 feet from a waterway. That flows into that lake. The couple, Chantel and Michael Sackett, objected when federal officials identified a portion of the property as a wetlands that required them to get a permit before they were able to fill it with rocks and soil to build on it. By a five to four vote, the court said in an opinion. By the, written by the far-right activist Justice Samuel Alito, once again legislating from the bench, that wetlands can only be regulated under the Clean Water Act if they have a, quote, continuous surface connection to larger regulated bodies of water. That is a test that Alito largely made up out of whole cloth in order to change the years-long interpretation of the Clean Water Act.
0: And the, you know, basic plain text of the law. Please it, proceed.
1: Yes. In, uh, in, in doing so, the court, in fact, jettisoned a 17-year-old opinion by their former Republican colleague, Anthony Kennedy which allowed regulation of what can be discharged into wetlands that could affect the health of the larger waterways. Kennedy's opinion covering wetlands that have a, quote, significant nexus to larger bodies of water had been the standard for evaluating whether permits were required for discharges under the 1972 landmark environmental law, at least until today when Alito decided to rewrite federal law to his own personal liking. So does a waterway that feeds into a lake that is just 30 feet away from uh, where these people want to build, does that uh, uh, become a significant nexus? Well, yes, it does under the old interpretation, but now, well, who needs precedent? Environmental activists said the uh, new standard would strip protections from millions of acres of wetlands across the country.
0: Some legal professors also say that it could affect more than half of the wetlands across the country.
1: Reacting to the decision, the chief executive of the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, called on Congress to amend the Clean Water Act to restore protections, well, good luck with that, and on states to strengthen their own laws. Quote, the Supreme Court ripped the heart out of the law that we depend on to protect American waters and wetlands. The majority chose to protect polluters at the expense of healthy wetlands and waterways. Aren't we all shocked? He said the decision will cause incalculable harm. Uh, and that communities across the country will pay the price. The EPA Administrator Michael Regan said in a statement that the Clean Water Act has been responsible for transformational progress in cleaning up the nation's waterways since it was first adopted in the early 70s. He says, I am disappointed by today's Supreme Court decision that erodes long-standing clean water protections. In the ruling on Thursday, all nine justices agreed that the wetlands on the Sackett's property specifically should not be covered by the act. But only five justices joined in the opinion that imposed this brand new made up from whole cloth. By Alito, once again, uh, this new test that they've invented for evaluating when wetlands are covered by the Clean Water Act, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. And the court's three liberal justices charged that their colleagues had, yes, rewritten that law. Kavanaugh broke uh, with the uh, right wing with the with his fellow right wingers and wrote that the court's, quote, new and overly narrow test may leave long regulated and long accepted to be regulable wetlands suddenly beyond the scope of the agency's regulatory authority. And when you've got Brett Kavanaugh saying that. Justice Elena Kagan wrote in a separate opinion that the majority's rewriting of the act was, quote, an effort to cabin the anti-pollution actions that Congress Congress thought appropriate, which is correct. Once again, the activist right wing court is legislating from the bench. The thing that they pretend that, you know, Democratic appointees do. And they're ignoring the original intent of Congress, which these Republican appointees pretend to give a damn about, at least when it's convenient to them. Because, by the way, they are not conservative. They are radical. As Kagan uh, wrote, Quote, in the majority in the majority's view, the act imposes the Clean Water Act imposes unjustifiable crushing consequences for violations of its terms. And many of those violations it thinks are of no real concern arising from, quote, mundane land use conduct, quote, like moving dirt. Congress, the majority scolds, has unleashed the EPA to regulate, quote, swimming pools and puddles, wreaking untold havoc on a staggering array of landowners. Which is, of course, not true. Uh, Surely, Kagan writes, something has to be done, and who else to do it but this court. It must recuse property owners from Congress's too ambitious program of pollution control. In other words, she's saying it's the court once again deciding what the law should be the activist court. Kagan referenced last year's court decision similarly uh, limiting the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act. So the right-wingers now in control of the court seem to believe that, you know, if you don't like a law, just change it at the bought-and-sold Supreme Court. They are happy to help, even as they pretend to care about the original intent of laws. At least if they are laws they decide that they like. In uh, both uh, cases, Kagan noted the court had appointed, quote, itself as the national decision maker on environmental policy. She's correct. Not the experts on such things at the EPA or even the members of Congress who developed the law, but themselves, the court. The environmental experts appointed to lifetime positions on the high court.
0: And I think it's also important to point out that the Sacketts, the extremely wealthy white couple that uh, fought (laughs) this all the way to the Supreme Court, they could have gotten a permit if they'd only applied for it. They chose not to. um, And they instead, instead chose to sue. And they were selected as plaintiffs by the Pacific Legal Foundation. That is a dark money group, mm-hmm. uh, co- so-called public interest law firm right. that is backed by very wealthy industries. And they've been bringing these kinds of cases to help expand rights for polluting industries while weakening things like civil rights on the side. Well, as well. exactly.
1: They find people, they find plaintiffs to bring these cases to, uh, you know, on the on the. Behest of corporations in order to knock down these laws. Right. And that's what these groups do. Uh, speaking of uh, right wing extremists, uh, y- you know, I'm I'm fairly sure that this story involves the only broadcast guest that has ever been sentenced to nearly twenty years in prison, at least that I know of. At least. After appearing on the broadcast, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes was sentenced on Thursday to 18 years in prison for orchestrating a weeks long plot culminating in his followers attacking the U.S. Capitol in a bid to keep President Joe Biden out of the White House after winning the 2020 election. The 58 year old Rhodes is the first person charged in the January 6th attack to be sentenced for seditious conspiracy and his sentence is the longest handed down so far in the hundreds of Capitol riot cases. The DOJ's sprawling probe, the largest in its history, has now led to seditious conspiracy convictions against the top leaders of two far-right extremist groups that authorities say came to D.C. prepared to fight to keep President Donald Trump in power at all costs. And that is notable because seditious conspiracy is rarely charged, as it is very difficult to prove. And the DOJ has failed in the past when attempting, for example, to charge a group of Nazis back in the 80s uh, under this particular statute. But they succeeded here twice in with these two separate groups. In a first for an insurrection case, the judge agreed to apply enhancement penalties for terrorism when sentencing Rhodes, that on top of what would normally be the sentencing for sedition. The, that decision could also foreshadow long sentences down the road for other far-right extremists, like the former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tario, who have uh, also been convicted of the same crimes. Stuart Rhodes is the Yutz with the eye patch, in case you don't know who he is. That maybe will jog your memory. He apparently lost that eye, by the way, after accidentally shooting himself. Did you know that? With a uh, 22 caliber pistol back in 1993, because he's a genius. He uh, appeared as a guest on this program, on the broadcast, however, back in 2016, Early 2016, when he was, I think, at least a bit less crazy, he was at the time he was speaking out against some of his fellow far right wingers, including the Bundy boys, if you remember them, the sons of the extremist right wing Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy, who had uh, his sons had taken over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. And Rhodes and his Oath Keepers had joined with the Bundys during their armed standoff. So they got to know them back uh, with with the federal government at their their, uh, ranch back in 2014. And when Rhodes appeared on this show, he was critical of the Bundy boys uh, and the others who took over their refuge, uh, claiming that they had uh, deceived them. As noted, I don't think... Rhodes was quite as far right and extreme at the time, though I do recall our conversation got sort of testy at times. (laughs) True. You can download that show if you like at Bradblog.com. I'll uh, I'll try to remember to link to it when I post the show tonight. But in any event, I don't suspect he will be a guest any time in the near future again on this program.
0: I think that's a fair guess.
1: Before announcing Rhodes's sentence, U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta described Rhodes as a continued threat to the U.S., who clearly, quote, wants democracy in this country to devolve into violence. The judge expressed fear that what happened on January 6 could be repeated, saying Americans will, quote, now hold our collective breaths every time an election is approaching. He's right about that. The judge told Rhodes the moment you are released, whenever that may be, you will be ready to take up arms against your government. Rhodes did not use the chance to express remorse or appeal for leniency during his sentencing, but instead claimed to be, quote, a political prisoner. And like President Trump, he said, my only crime, my only crime is opposing those who are destroying our country. Uh, uh, but in in an encrypted chat, in fact, just two days after Biden was announced to be the winner of the 2020 election, Stuart Rhodes told his fellow Oath Keepers to prepare for quote civil war," and in a conference call a few days later, he urged uh, he urged his followers to let Trump know that they were quote willing to die for the country." One Oath Keeper who was listening was so alarmed that he began recording that call. He contacted the FBI telling jurors that, quote, it sounded like we were going to war against the U.S. government. On January 6th, it seems they tried to do exactly that. Prosecutors had urged 25 years for Rhodes, so the judge actually did him a favor with only 18. Rhodes' attorneys uh, had requested no more than time served already the judge agreed to the department's request for the terrorism enhancement under the argument that the oathkeepers sought to influence the government's uh, influence the government through quote intimidation or coercion so more oathkeepers are expected to be sentenced in the days ahead also for sedition Rhodes's sentence may signal what prosecutors will seek for tario and the other Proud Boys leaders who were also convicted of sedition. Before Thursday, the longest sentence in the more than 1,000 Capitol riot cases so far brought by the DO, uh, DOJ uh, was 14 years for a man with a long criminal record who attacked police officers with pepper spray. Just over 500 of the defendants have now been sentenced with more than half receiving prison time. And on Wednesday, another well-known insurrectionist, Yutz, received a long prison sentence. In comparison to the 18 years for Rhodes, I guess it doesn't seem quite as much, but for a 63-year-old man... For anyone, in fact, it's still a pretty long time to be behind bars. The Arkansas man photographed on January 6th with his feet on a desk in then Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office was sentenced on Wednesday to four and a half years in federal prison. Prosecutors asked the judge to sentence Richard Bigot Barnett. To more than seven years for his actions before, during and after the riot at the Capitol, they noted in a court filing that a picture of a smiling Barnett lounging in Pelosi's office had become one of the best known images of that day symboling the uh, rioters having wrested control of both the hallowed space and the political process from the nation's elected leaders. They did so, of course, with the help of the organized, militarized assault on the Capitol led by the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Barnett's lawyers had argued he shouldn't get more than six months behind bars. Quote, Mr. Barnett is a... 63-year-old retired firefighter and bull rider from rural Arkansas who came to D.C. for his very first time to peacefully protest and was unfortunately caught up in the events. Peacefully? He came with a stun device and a 10-pound steel pole just to peacefully protest, you know. The uh, U.S. District Court judge, Christopher Cooper, disagreed with his attorneys and sentenced him to 54 months in prison. Barnett was convicted in January on eight charges stemming from the Capitol attack, including theft of government property, remaining in a restricted building on grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon. Barnett became widely known uh, as a symbol of the riot when he was photographed in that chair in Pelosi's office with his feet propped up and with the government referred to as a stun device tucked into his pants. Before he left Pelosi's office, he took an envelope from uh, her office that he proudly displayed for the cameras outside the Capitol. Because that's how dumb this guy is. This super genius also acknowledged leaving a note for Pelosi that read, quote, Nancy Bigo was here. And then he added a sexist expletive. So he took pictures of his crime. He signed his a note saying he was there. Anyway, he expressed remorse for his actions uh, when he took the witness stand in his own defense. But after this super genius bull rider was convicted, he maintained he was the victim of, quote, political persecution.
0: So his remorse didn't last that long.
1: No, apparently it didn't. Prosecutors pushed back on his claims that he had been unintentionally swept up by the crowd because, well, he actually brought that stun device. He prepared for the violence, they said, by arming himself with that device and with the 10-pound steel pole. And, and then he traveled to D.C. with those weapons. He only left the Capitol after he was hit with chemical spray, and then he bragged about his actions to, uh, to reporters. He then, by the way, went on to make a lot of money. From his notoriety and his criminal conduct, prosecutors pointed pointed out by selling autographed pictures of himself in Pelosi's office and continued tweeting disinformation and conspiracy theories about the January 6th attack since his conviction. So, yeah, I don't think he's all that sorry. Maybe he will be over the next four and a half years as he gets to ponder his actions. He is without remorse and would readily engage in similar conduct in the future, said prosecutors. Well, one more. Uh, as I say, he'll have a lot of time to think about it. One more uh, right wing election denying yachts before we get to a break here today. You thought our uh, coverage of the 2022 elections w- results were, were over?
0: <laughs> oh, silly. you! Silly
1: you. We're in until the bitter end around here, and in this case, uh, clearly it is very bitter. This actually happened at the beginning of the week, but I've only been able to get to it now, and as we're planning to be off next week, it would drive me nuts over the next week if I didn't at least close the, the loop on this one. A Maricopa County Arizona judge has affirmed yet again Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs's victory last November and has rejected Republican Kerry Lake's claims... Again, that uh, in this case, improper signature verification and misconduct affected the outcome. That's the only reason she lost. Now, you'll recall that the former TV news anchor, self-proclaimed Trump mini-me, election denier and, by the way, potential vice presidential hopeful for Donald Trump, I guess, who lost to Hobbs last year by about 17,000 votes out of about two and a half million that were cast in Arizona in 22. She subsequently declared that she actually won the election and by a landslide. It wasn't even close. And she only lost due to massive fraud. Sound familiar? That nobody was able, ever able to find, by the way, that fraud which should also sound familiar, and then she subsequently lost every single attempt to have herself declared the winner in a courtroom. After losing at the appellate court level, when all of her charges, all of them were rejected, she took to Twitter to declare it was actually a victory since she had previously vowed to take her case all the way to the Arizona Supreme Court. And uh, oh, by the way, please donate to her election defense fund, you suckers. Well, the Arizona Supremes, as it turns out, also tossed out all of her claims except for one a claim that she made that signatures on mail in ballots were not properly verified, which, even if true, Would now be impossible to know, you know, who those ballots were actually cast for. In any event, in Arizona, as I understand their election laws, after a certain point, after an election is certified, one must not only prove that an election was inaccurately tabulated, but that it was purpose, purposefully done so with with fraud and malice. Actual intent. And that is very difficult to prove, and none of Lake's claims came even close. But while the state Supreme Court found zero evidence of uh, any fraud, they decided to uh, that her one claim, that there was uh, no signature verification at all, uh, that uh, claim, the Supreme Court decided, was dismissed too quickly by the lower court, and... The Supreme's ordered that that claim be reheard. That is the one single claim that Maricopa County Superior Court judge Peter Thompson heard once again during a 3-day uh, trial and testimony and argument in his Mesa County courtroom in his Mesa courtroom last week. Lakes' legal team argued it could prove that signatures were not examined. They just let anybody send in a ballot and then they just counted it. Didn't even bother to look. Or that they were done in uh, so quickly, such a short time frame, it did not count as signature verification under state law. Well, Judge Thompson, in his ruling, disagreed. It is not a surprise As the Arizona Republic columnist, the great uh, columnist Lori Roberts, she was in the courtroom, and uh, as she reported last week, Carrie Lake opened her second trial challenging the 2022 election with a complete and total fizzle. Her attorney, Kurt Olson, told the judge he'd be presenting evidence that Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, the largest county in the state by far, Maricopa County did not verify the voter signatures on Quote, hundreds of thousands of early ballots. This isn't a question of not doing it well enough, he said. They're simply not doing signature verification. And then he called his first witness. Who he described as a whistleblower who then proceeded to annihilate Kerry Lake's own case. The woman had worked as a signature reviewer. She spent more than an hour explaining the lengths to which the county went to verify signatures, the week-long training of workers, the three levels of signature review, the admonitions to get it right. Quote, they, supervisors, told us, You need to be very cautious. You need to pay attention to what you're doing. And remember, whatever you reject or approve, you can be called to testify. She testified. She said, I was very focused on verifying signatures and making sure the signatures matched. As a witness for the defense, writes Roberts, she was dynamite. Problem is, she was supposed to be the star witness for Lake. Two hours in and this trial was already over, wrote Roberts. By the lunch break, a day and a half into the trial, things weren't looking any better for Lake. Or for her attorneys who had to be schooled by the judge in how to try a case. Quote, I feel like I'm teaching a seminar up here, the judge said at one (laughs) point. Never a good sign. Lake had a second so-called whistleblower who also testified on her behalf. That one also served to bolster the county's case. As blockbusters go, Roberts wrote, as the case was half over, Carrie Lake is halfway there if you count the Bust part of blockbusters. Well, this week, Judge Thompson dismissed Carrie Lake's case yet again in a statement. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors chair, who is a Republican, critiqued Lake's false claims and her effort to, quote, discard the valid votes of hundreds of thousands of Arizona voters Quote, when bombshells and smoking guns are not backed up by facts, they fail in court. He said this is justice and this is what happened today in Kerry Lake's election contest. Lake, of course, has still not conceded the race. She is considering another appeal to the Supreme Court now in, in the state. We wish her, of course, nothing but good luck in the meantime. Lawyers for Maricopa County have now asked the judge to issue sanctions against Lake and her legal team for their, quote, heinous and profoundly harmful claims that the November 2022 election was rigged in a request uh, this week. County attorneys laid out five material represent misrepresentations of fact that were made by Lake and her attorneys leading to the three day trial uh, last week leading and during that trial. The attorneys asked the judge to order Lake and her attorneys to pay a fine. They are uh, leaving the amount of that fine up to the court to determine. Well, that must be yet another victory for Carrie Lake, I'm guessing.
0: At least one she'll continue to fundraise off of.
1: Yep. Uh, But for now, she has lost again. Uh, And someday, someday, the 2022 election in Arizona May finally be over. We're getting closer. Let's take a quick break, and we are back with more broadcast with more Republican yutzes, including the latest on the House GOP's debt ceiling hostage crisis and a theory that maybe helps, maybe helps make the Biden administration's response to it all somehow make sense. Maybe. That's straight ahead on the broadcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So a debt limit deal is still not yet close at hand for House Republicans and the White House, according to CNN today. As lawmakers leave the nation's capital for Memorial Day weekend and the risk of a first ever default of the U.S. government continues to grow. They note with no bill to vote on, House lawmakers are leaving, though they will be given 24 hours notice to return if and when a deal is reached. Each day that passes without a bipartisan deal to raise the debt ceiling brings the nation closer to default, which could be catastrophic for the global economy and have financial effects on countless millions of Americans. Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Thursday would not guarantee that a deal will pass by June 1, which the Treasury Department has warned could be the earliest possible so called X date for missing debt payments. They describe it as the X date. They don't really know when it is, but that is when essentially the U.S. is unable to make payments without further borrowing. Even getting close to that date could spell financial disaster, as it did the last time that Republicans pulled this very same stunt when a Democrat was in the White House. This was back in 2011, when the U.S. saw its credit rating actually downgraded even without a default, we didn't go to default, but just from fear of defo- of default, our credit rating was downgraded. It costed, cost hundreds of billions of dollars, and yes, it increased the debt and deficit that Republicans pretended back then, just like now, That they care about, even though we know that they actually don't. As Bernie Sanders noted on Twitter this week, underscoring that point: Quote, Republicans in D.C. are pushing for a massive increase in the $858 billion Pentagon budget, a $1.8 trillion tax break to people who inherit over $1 billion, and a $3.5 trillion extension of Trump's. Tax breaks. Oh, did they tell you how very, very concerned they are about the deficit? Bernie snarked. So, yeah, they don't actually care about the debt or the deficit, as we have uh, discussed on this program. And now the U.S. credit rating, well, that could be in trouble again, thanks to this dangerous brinkmanship by the GOP. On Wednesday, Fitch Ratings, that's one of the top three credit rating agencies, placed the top-ranked U.S. sovereign credit rating on Rating Watch Negative signaling that it could downgrade US debt if lawmakers do not agree on a bill that raises US Treasury's debt limits. So, this is a mess. It is getting very troubling and of course we have covered a number of seemingly very easy ways that you know the President Biden could get us out of this including a simple declaration that he will honor the nation's debt and follow the law By ordering the Treasury Department to continue borrowing, whether we hit the statutory limit or not, given that that one law should not force the president to break all of the other laws, mandating that he pay for all of the stuff that Congress has also decreed as a matter of law, like paying Social Security checks and veterans uh, benefits and interest on borrowed money and so forth. And, of course... Joe Biden has Section 4 of the 14th Amendment to invoke, if he wishes. That holds that the validity of the public debt of the U.S., authorized by law, shall not be questioned. So why hasn't he already invoked the 14th Amendment at this point? When asked about that, he has hemmed and hawed and he's given answers that, to be frank, don't make much sense that have led some of us to wonder, does he actually understand the 14th Amendment? You know, his claim that, oh, it, w- it would take such a long time to litigate. We don't have the time for that right now. It, it wouldn't get litigated before we pass the X Date and so forth, which, of course, is ridiculous in that all he has to do is declare that he's going to keep paying our debts as per the law and the Constitution. And then, you know, wait and see if someone sues him, someone who we don't know who even would even have legal standing to sue him. He even has a lawsuit, by the way, already against him by the National Association of Government Employees. They claim they're already being harmed just by the extraordinary measures that the uh, Treasury Department has taken in, in recent uh, months in order to Uh, not reach the debt ceiling, not reach the X date, they call on Biden to invoke the 14th. All Biden would have to do is agree with the plaintiffs in that case. And it's questionable, again, that there is anyone with the legal standing to otherwise intervene to argue against paying the bills, You know, and in favor of somehow crashing the economy. So the defendants in this case, Joe Biden and and Janet Yellen, the Treasury secretary, all they have to do is say, yeah, uh, you caught us. We agree. (laughs) But we agree. It's uh, uh, unconstitutional. We'll, uh, you know, we'll pay all the bills. So why hasn't Joe Biden done that already? Well, MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell, had a theory on that that he discussed this week, that uh, though neither he nor certainly I have any clue as to whether this is actually what is going on inside the White House, this theory of his actually does seem to make sense, particularly given that for months the White House had previously said they would not negotiate at all on raising the debt ceiling. They insisted that any negotiations over spending and the budget would take place later on, months down the road, during the budget process later this year. But now, obviously, the White House has been in negotiations with Speaker McCarthy for some reason. So why would he do that? Particularly since Biden was vice president when the GOP pulled this same stunt the last time. Back in 2011, under Obama, and an attempt to negotiate a deal at that point, well, that ended up being what everyone agrees was a huge mistake. It cost the government a lot of money, among other things. It also greatly slowed the recovery from the 20, uh, 2008 Great Recession, and most damaging of all, it established that the, the idea, the notion that the debt ceiling could somehow be negotiated over, which, of course, when you negotiate with terrorists, why, of course, they'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So why would Biden make that same mistake again by going into negotiations with these people? I don't know. You don't know. And frankly, Lawrence O'Donnell doesn't know either. But he worked in the U.S. Senate for years. And while he admits that he certainly doesn't know, he does have a theory while he was in the, uh, working in the Senate, he explained, he worked with both Joe Biden and his lead negotiator on the debt ceiling now, a guy by the name of Steve Rachetti, who O'Donnell describes as hands down the best negotiator that he had ever seen. And in that case, O'Donnell was actually in the room with these people and saw what they were doing behind closed doors to negotiate or defeat their negotiating partners. O'Donnell says it would be difficult to believe that either Joe Biden or Steve Reschetti would negotiate a dumb deal, particularly when other options like invoking the 14th are available to them, which he says they certainly understand and they certainly know. And yet they're not invoking the 14th for some reason. Well, in fact, as O'Donnell explained, there are actually two fiscal cliffs that both Biden and the Democrats will need to avoid this year in advance of next year's presidential election. One is the debt ceiling, which obviously could lead to default and potentially catastrophic effects, you know, consequences that could be worse than anyone even realizes at this point, given that we have never defaulted on our debt in this country before. So that's one fiscal cliff. And the other upcoming fiscal cliff is the budget negotiations that come up in October, where we know that Republicans are more than willing to shut down the government because they've done it many times in the past. And they know that, well, they can get away with that one. It doesn't completely destroy the world economy, unlike a debt default, but it does hurt just enough to cause pain to the economy that they can then blame on Biden and the Democrats next year. Whether it's fair to do or not. Obviously, they don't care about fairness. So O'Donnell's theory of the case is that Biden and Rachetti, may be solving both of those problems at the same time. That they know they're going to have to negotiate on on a budget deal later this year, and they know that they're going to have to make concessions in that process in order to pass any budget with the cooperation of a Republican-majority House and hopefully keep the government operating. So the thinking, according to O'Donnell, who doesn't again, doesn't know this, but is speculating is, you know, why not negotiate some of those concessions now in exchange for getting a deal on both avoiding the default now and a deal to avoid government shutdown later this
0: year. So sort of a way of defusing two bombs at once.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which makes a lot of sense. In offering a few concessions now in this process in exchange for both of those things, that would allow the Republicans to declare victory in the debt ceiling. O'Donnell noted they're already doing that just because Biden is has conceded to negotiate with them at all when he originally said he wouldn't, so they already see it as a victory. And the Republicans will need a victory in order to save face with their cult members, As they, you know, get out of what they know is an unbelievably damaging debt default cliff. And at the same time, you know, they get to declare, well, we won spending cuts. Mind you, those spending cuts, whatever they may be, are are cuts that Biden likely would have had to have made anyway in order to get enough Republicans in the House to pass a budget this fall. So why not do it now or at least agree to do it now in exchange for an agreement that avoids both fiscal cliffs. So I do realize that you know this is some very serious three-dimensional chess, four-dimensional chess, 10-dimensional chess going on if it is actually going on, and it's only a guess from O'Donnell as to uh, you know what could be going on here, but it's based on his personal experience with both Rochetti and Biden that they are somehow master negotiators. I'll have to take his word for that. And it checks a whole bunch of boxes to explain a whole bunch of things like why Biden initially refused to negotiate. But then he decided to negotiate all of a sudden. And also it explains why he has been reticent to invoke the 14th Amendment. Now, you would be right to point out that Biden was there in 2011 when this happened the last time. So he knows that it's damaging to even merely negotiate at all on the debt ceiling, to negotiate with terrorists, to give them anything because they'll just come back for it again. That deal that Obama made at the time in 2011 putting caps on the budget in order to Raise the debt ceiling, that haunted Obama, it haunted Biden for years. So why would Biden now want to do the same thing again, make the same mistake again and saddle a future president with this notion that the debt ceiling can somehow be negotiated whenever Republicans want to hold the global economy hostage? Well, in fact, the answer to that would lie or might lie in Biden's curious and vague responses that we have been sort of quoting for the last week or two about invoking the 14th at some future time, maybe later, he says, when we would have, you know, the time that would be needed to lit- litigate it, etc. And in truth, as we have pointed out on this show, that's ridiculous and is seemingly ill informed opinion about the 14th Amendment. Uh, It doesn't need to be litigated. All Biden needs to do is simply order the Treasury to keep paying our bills and let someone try to sue him. Trying to make him crash the global economy, if they can prove that they even have legal standing to sue him in the first place. So it's 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 ridiculous to wait to use the 14th Amendment unless You don't want to invoke the 14th Amendment right now because you are on the verge of getting a win on both of the upcoming fiscal cliffs. In that case, get the deal first to avoid the default, to lock in the Republicans for the October budget deal as well. And then separately, as Biden has sort of suggested he would, separately get a ruling Concerning the future use of uh, the uh, 14th Amendment, uh, declaring the uh, debt limit to be unconstitutional, get some sort of a ruling, whether it's from the Supreme Court, you know, after invoking the 14th Amendment, waiting for a challenge in, in a way that A, won't risk crashing the economy right now, B, gets you over both of those cliffs, and C, would then prevent any future use of the debt ceiling and hostage taking by Republicans because the debt ceiling would then be declared unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. If this is if this is underway, it's actually a brilliantly devious plan. That's a big if, of course. And I'll note again that neither I nor Lawrence O'Donnell have any clue if it's actually going on. But it does check a whole bunch of boxes to explain a whole bunch of really all of the curious administration behavior we have seen over the past several weeks. So I hope that he is doing that, even though I personally am more inclined to believe He is just as bad a negotiator as Barack Obama originally was. But in truth, I have no clue and neither does anyone else other than those inside the negotiations right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does fit the theory of how the administration has been behaving. defuse the two bombs and then hold this for later when you're going to really need it to slap this nonsense down again.
1: <laughs> well, it, it also explains, you know, in that suit by the, the National Association for Government Employees, it explains why uh, in court this week in responding to the judge about the position that the Department of Justice has, they said, well, we we uh, we haven't we haven't decided yet. We're not ready to say that yet. Yeah. So they don't (laughs) want to show their hand either, it seems. So in true, if this is uh, happens, it would be a hell of a coup for Biden to pull off. And it does at least so far, sort of mesh with and and fill in a lot of unexplained blanks in all of the reporting on all of this that I have been seeing for the past several weeks, including, by the way, this exclusive report from Reuters today. They report Joe Biden and top Republican lawmakers Kevin McCarthy are edging close to a deal on the debt ceiling, with the parties just $70 billion apart on discretionary spending. That, according to a person familiar with the talks, what is likely to emerge will not be a hundreds page long bill that would take you know, days for lawmakers to write and read and vote on, but a slimmed down agreement with a few key numbers. The expectation is that negotiators will hammer out top line numbers for discretionary spending, including the number for military spending, but leave lawmakers to hammer out the fine details through the normal appropriate appropriations process later on in the months ahead That, according to a second source, the end result would likely just put guardrails on future budget talks, according to sources. The White House declined to comment. But that would work perfectly with uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's scheme in any event. It would. We will see what happens in the days ahead. But that makes a lot of sense. Quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Okay, programming note coming up, but as usual, we're short on time, so we will get to it after our latest Green News report.
0: Tonight, most of the island is without power, and officials say they're only just beginning to survey the damage. Super Typhoon Mawar slams into Guam. Global heating could expose billions to unlivable temperatures by 2100. Plus... Stop right now, no more Stop fossil fuels and end this Climate activists disrupt oil industry shareholder
1: meetings. In song, all of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. My friends across the aisle, the Grand Appliance Party is going to make sure your gas stove goes nowhere. The good news for you today is that if you have to shutter your business because the country defaults, your gas stove will still be there. Oh, I feel much better. This is your Green News Report. I look forward to the legislation of our time, the Appliance Bill of Rights. I'm
0: gonna soak up-
1: Okay, Desi Doyen, it kind of spun up... Out of nowhere overnight, but a huge storm in Guam.
0: Yes, nearly the entire island of Guam is now without electricity after Super Typhoon Mawar rapidly intensified just before slamming into the U.S. Pacific Island territory as a powerful Category 4 storm on Wednesday. An unprecedented ninth Category 4 or 5 storm to hit a U.S. state or territory since 2017. Studies show that rapid Intensification of storms is increasing in both frequency and magnitude, driven by rising ocean temperatures from human-caused climate change. A suite of new studies exposes the accelerating impacts and costs of burning fossil fuels. The first warns that ever higher temperatures generated by man-made global warming will render parts of the world uninhabitable outside of the geographic human climate niche, the temperature range in which civilization has flourished from a millennia. If countries only meet their current climate targets, the world would be on track for 2.7 degrees Celsius of heating above pre-industrial temperatures in coming decades. That would expose about a third of humanity to unprecedented heat, forcing up to a billion people to migrate, in turn increasing conflicts over resources.
1: Sounds bad, but do I still get to keep my gas stove?
0: A second study estimates that a multi-day heat wave striking during a multi-day power outage in Phoenix, Arizona, would push nearly 800,000 people to seek emergency medical attention for heat stroke or other heat-related illnesses, overwhelming the city's hospital capacity. The researchers warn other cities face similar risks from overlapping blackouts and heat waves. Blackouts nationwide have more than doubled since 2015 as heat waves intensify because of man-made global warming. A new analysis by the World Meteorological Organization finds that since 1970, climate and water-related disasters have killed more than 2 million people and caused economic damages on the order of $4.3 trillion. More than a third of the economic damages from those disasters occurred in the United States, but nearly 90 percent of the deaths were in developing countries. The WMO says early warning systems have reduced the human toll of extreme disasters, but the trend of economic losses continues to rise.
1: Not a whole lot to snark about today.
0: No, unfortunately. And now a new groundbreaking analysis for the first time has quantified the economic burden that polluting companies have imposed on society. The report, called Time to Pay the Piper, finds that the world's top 21 fossil fuel-emitting companies have caused more than $5 trillion in damages from decades of pollution and climate impacts. The study calculates that polluters owe at least $2 $210 billion annually, or $23 trillion total, in climate reparations for current and future damages to come over the next few decades.
1: Yes, but think of all the profits they made.
0: Well, the oil industry certainly can't afford it. Highlighting the fossil fuel industry's record profits last year, climate protesters in the UK are disrupting big corporate shareholder meetings to increase pressure on the fossil fuel industry and its funders the banking industry to stop causing catastrophic global warming thank you at shell oil's annual meeting this week ceo sir andrew mckenzie whose company pulled in a record 39 billion dollars in profits last year alone scolded the activists who delayed the meeting is uninhabitable. I, I could excuse me excuse me i i i, I think We've heard your point. You've made it several times over.
1: Yeah, you've heard their thoughts several times over, and yet for decades you continue to kill the planet. What's up with that, Sir Andrew? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We got to stop right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got to right now too. Yep, stop could All right too We gotta get out My thanks to our producer Jesse. Doyne To all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us It is always greatly appreciated If you missed any portion of today's show or any other You can download all of them for free at bradblog.com That's made possible by those of you kind enough to support our work By stopping by bradblog.com donate Program note before we go, we are off next week for a much-needed break after uh, Memorial Day, our first since uh, Christmas, as I recall. Uh, it's either that or maybe, just maybe, we're driving up to Montana to uh, hide out in a shelter or something as the economy crashes. Good luck to everyone. I'm sure it'll be fine while we're gone. That's it. We got to go. Drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons. I am the Brad Blog. I'd love to hear from you while I'm gone and in the bunker in Montana. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
0: We got to stop right now before it be too late.